Can there be compassion without justice? At the height of the drama of the Golden Calf, a vivid and enigmatic scene takes place. Moses has secured forgiveness for the people. But now on Mount Sinai, yet again, he does more. He asks God to be with the people. He says, teach me your ways, show me your glory. God replies, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. God then placed Moses in a cleft in the rock face, telling him he'd be able to see his back, but not his face. And then Moses hears God say these words, Hashem, Hashem, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. unpunished. This passage became known as the Yud Gimun Midot Rachamim, the 13 attributes of God's compassion. The sages understood this episode as the moment when God taught Moses and through him future generations how to pray when atoning for sin. Moses himself used these words with slight variations during the next crisis, that of the spies. Eventually they became the basis of the special prayers that we still say today, known as Slichot, prayers of penitence. It was as if God were binding himself to forgive the penitent in each generation by this self-definition. God is compassionate and lives in love and forgiveness. That's an essential element of Jewish faith. But there is a caveat. God adds, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. There's a further clause about visiting the sins of the parents on the children, which demands a separate analysis, and I'm not going to talk about it here. But the caveat tells us that there's forgiveness, but there's also punishment. There's compassion, but there is also justice. Why so? Why must there be justice as well as compassion, punishment as well as forgiveness? The sages said that when God created the universe, he did so under the attribute of justice, but then saw it couldn't survive. What did he do? He added compassion to justice and created the world. And this statement prompts the same question. Why didn't God abandon justice altogether? Why is forgiveness alone not enough? Some fascinating recent research in diverse fields from moral philosophy to evolutionary psychology, from games theory to environmental ethics, provides us with an extraordinary and unexpected answer. The best point of beginning is Garrett Harding's famous paper written in 1968 about the tragedy of the commons. He asks us to imagine an asset with no specific owner, pasture land that belongs to everyone, or the sea and the fish it contains. So that asset provides a livelihood to many people, the local shepherds or farmers or the fishermen. But eventually, it attracts too many people. There is overpasturing or overfishing, and the resource is depleted. The pasture is at risk of becoming wasteland. The fish are in danger of extinction. What then happens? The common good demands that, from, that everyone from here on has to practice restraint. They have to limit the number of animals they graze on the pasture or the 
number amount of fish that they catch. But some individuals attempted not to do so. They want to cheat. They want to overpasture or overfish because the gain to them is great and the loss to others is small since it's divided by so many. Self-interest takes precedence over the common good and if enough people do so, the result is disaster. That is called the tragedy of the commons and explains how environmental catastrophes occur. The problem is what is called the free rider. The person who wants to ride on the train without paying the fare. The person who pursues his or her self-interest without bearing their share of the cost of the common good. And because of the importance of this type of situation to many contemporary problems, they've been intensively studied by mathematical biologists like Anatole Rappaport and Martin Novak, and behavioral economists like Daniel Kahneman and the late Amos Tversky. One of the things they've done is create experimental situations that simulate this sort of problem. Now here is one example. Four players are each given eight dollars. They are told they can choose to invest as much or as little as they want in a common fund. The experimenter collects the contributions, adds them up, adds 50%, which is like the gain the farmer or the fisherman would have made by using the commons, and he distributes the sum equally to all four players. So if each gives their full $8 to the fund, they each receive $12 at the end. But supposing one player contributes nothing, the fund will then total $24, because three of the four players will have given $8. Then add 50%, that becomes $36. It is then distributed equally among the four people, so they each receive $9. The result is that three of them will have gained $1, but the people who started with 8 and end up with 9, while the fourth, the free rider, will have gained $9. So, obviously, it pays to cheat. But obviously, this is not a stable situation, because as the game is played repeatedly, the participants begin to realize that there's a cheat a free rider among them, even if the experiment is structured so that they don't know who it is. One of two things then tends to happen. Either everyone stops contributing to the fund, i.e. they stop contributing to the common good, or if they agree, or if they are given the choice, they choose to punish the free rider. Often people are keen to punish even if it means they will have to pay to do so, even if it means they'll lose thereby. This is sometimes called altruistic punishment. Now, some have linked participants in this game to MRI machines to see which parts of the brain are activated by such games. Interestingly, altruistic punishment is linked to pleasure centers in the brain. As Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize-winning economist, puts it, it appears that maintaining the social order and the rules of fairness in this fashion is its own reward. Altruistic punishment could well be the glue that holds societies together. Now, this, of course, is hardly a happy situation. Punishment is bad news for everyone. The offender suffers, but so do the punishers, who have to spend time or money they might otherwise be using in improving the collective outcome. And in cross-cultural studies, it turns out to be people from countries 
where there is widespread free riding, where there's a lot of cheating going on, who punish most severely. People are most punitive in societies where there is the most corruption and the least public spiritedness. Public punishment, in other words, is the solution of last resort. This brings us to religion. Another series of experiments has shed light on the role of religious practices in such circumstances. Tests have been carried out in which participants have the opportunity to cheat and gain by so doing. If without any connection being made to the experiment at hand, participants have been primed to think religious thoughts, for instance, they're just shown words relating to God, or they're being reminded of the Ten Commandments. If, they, if they've been somehow the word God has come into the conversation, and then they play the game, they cheat significantly less. What's particularly fascinating about such tests is that outcomes show no relationship to the underlying beliefs of the participants. It doesn't matter if they believe in God, what matters is, are they reminded of God? This may well be why daily prayer and other regular rituals are so important. Because what affects us at moments of temptation is not so much what we believe, but the fact that we've been recently reminded of our belief, which is what happens every time we doven. Of much greater significance have been the experiments designed to test the impact of different ways of thinking about God. Do we think primarily in terms of God as forgiving or God as bringing justice and punishment? Some bits of the great faiths emphasize one, others another. There are hellfire preachers and those who speak about love and forgiveness. And the question is, which of the two is more effective? Needless to say, when the experimental subjects are atheists or agnostics, there's no difference. They're not affected either way. But among religious believers, the difference is significant. Those who believe in a punitive God, a God who punishes us and who believes in justice, cheat and steal less than those who believe in a forgiving God. Experiments were then performed to see how believers relate to free riders in common good situations like the ones we've described above. Were they willing to forgive or did they punish the free riders even at a cost to themselves? And here the results were extraordinary. People who believed in a punishing God punish people less than those people who believe in a forgiving God. In other words, those who believe that, as the Torah says, God doesn't leave the guilty unpunished are more likely to leave punishment to God. Those who focus on God's forgiveness are more likely, as human beings, to practice retribution and revenge, which is extraordinary, but it's been experimentally shown. The same applies to societies as a whole. Here the experimenters used terms not entirely germane to Judaism. They compared countries in terms of the percentages of the population who believed in heaven and in hell. The result was that the nations with the highest levels of belief in hell and the lowest levels of belief in heaven had the lowest crime rates. In contrast, the nations that believed in heaven but didn't believe in hell had very high crime rates. These patterns persisted across nearly all the major religious faiths, including various Christian, Hindu, and syncretic religions, that uh, the combinations of various belief systems. This was so surprising a finding that people asked in that case, why are there religions that emphasize God's forgiveness and don't emphasize his punishment? And one of them suggested the following explanation, because 
Though hell might be better at getting people to be good, heaven is so much better at getting them to feel good. So if a religion wants to make lots of converts, it's much easier to sell a religion that promises a divine paradise than a religion that threatens believers with fire and brimstone. It is now clear why. At the very moment when God is declaring his compassion, grace, and forgiveness, God insists that he does not leave the guilty unpunished. A world without divine justice would be one in which there is more resentment, punishment, and crime, and less public spiritedness and forgiveness, even among religious believers. The more we believe that God punishes the guilty, the more forgiving we become. The less we believe that God punishes the guilty, the more resentful and punitive we become. This is a totally counterintuitive truth, and yet one that finally allows us to see the profound wisdom of the Torah in helping us create a humane and compassionate society.